Welcome back, everyone, to the Drink and Learn podcast. I'm drink historian Elizabeth Pierce. And I'm bartender Abigail Gullo. And we are here in another beautiful room at the old number 77 hotel. Yes, our studio room. Each one is decorated by a local New Orleans artist. So come check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Hotel, for giving us a place to record. So we, we don't so appreciate it. Yeah. They're the best here. They're so nice. And so we don't have to worry about our dogs uh, barking in the background if yes. we were recording in our house, yeah. my house or your house. Yeah, there'd be dogs. Yeah. Woof, woof. And crazy neighbors. Right, yeah, right, because New Orleans. Yeah. And also possibly, like, a trumpet <laughs> every now and then. <laughs> a band walking by. Yeah, or like the guy next door uh, practicing. Uh, so today, today is, I'll, today, I'll take Manhattan. I'll take ah. a Manhattan. Always, I'll take a Manhattan. Yeah, it is, um, it's definitely one of my favorites uh, brown, bittered, and stirred. Uh, a long time, well, not a long, well, I guess a couple of years ago, I didn't know how to articulate the kind of cocktail that I liked, and it was Abigail who said it for me. She said, you like brown, bittered, and stirred. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, yeah, right. And that is definitely what a Manhattan is. And we'll def- we'll talk about all of those aspects, including the stirred, mm-hmm. for sure. So the Manhattan I got a lot of this inf- the information I'm going to share with you from a great book by Philip Green called The Manhattan, The Story of the First Modern Cocktail. Uh, that word modern is kind of key because it, it kicks off, well, it kicks off a lot of things. I think if you listen to our episode about the old fashioned, you'll understand where we are coming from when we talk about how the Manhattan is such an important cocktail in the timeline of the of the modern cocktail movement. Yeah, because there was we alluded to it a little bit when we talked about all of the modifiers that were showing up behind the bar. What we like to call "old man who shakes fist at sky" mm-hmm. uh, was complaining about when he said, "I want an old fashioned cocktail." Mm-hmm. Because people were starting to add curacao or maraschino, gum syrup, absinthe, and vermouth. vermouth. And it's vermouth that makes, well, there's lots of things that make a Manhattan a Manhattan, but that, that was the key. That was the key. A little vermouth history. Allegedly, there's a lot of alleged. There's actually. This like entire with all things ep- that involve alcohol, there's a lot of allegedly. <laughs> this entire episode should be t- subtitled allegedly. But we know some names. One man, Antonio Carpano, mm-hmm. uh, which personally, that's my one of my favorite vermouths, um, created a blend of 30 botanicals macerated with sweet Moscato wine in 1786. And allegedly, he sent it to... It was a king. There wasn't only one king. There wasn't in Italy then. They were all kingdoms. Um, but he sent it off. Everybody liked it. Well, because it's delicious. And if you've never had Garpano Antica vermouth, then press pause and go buy go some. Go find some. And this aromatized wine uh, becomes super popular throughout Italy. And not long after, uh, France uh, has its own versions. A man named Joseph Noe, uh, my French is terrible, N-O-I-L-L-Y. Like no- Noli Pratt? 
Yes, but I don't think I don't it's not pronounced Noli. Noli? Is it Noli? I don't know. What would what would um, Julia Child say? Because that was her favorite vermouth. I don't know. I okay. So I thought two L's. You know what? Let's. Can you ask the internet? And we'll just. I'll just wait. Sure. Because I don't want to say it wrong. Okay. I want. Whenever I see letters in French, I always assume you don't pronounce anything because they're that difficult. Noi Prat, French. Noi? Noi Prat. I think it's Noi. Noi. You're right. Noi Prat. Okay. Noi Prat, French. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks. So, this uh, aromatized wine is super popular across Italy. And it spreads to France in the 1800s. You have Joseph Noy creating his own less sweet version. And that will be the thing that we eventually call dry vermouth. Uh, Not long after him comes Joseph, Joseph, very popular name in France, I guess. Uh, Joseph Chavas creates Dolan. And not long after, the firm um, Martini y Sola which will eventually become Martini and Rossi. Martini and Rossi. Uh, spumante. Celebrate life. Anybody remember that commercial? <laughs> Martini and Rossi. Rossi Asti spumante. spumante. Celebrate life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't wait to grow up and I and know. not only drink Martini and Rossi Asti Spumante, but to go to beautiful Mount Airy Lodge which is in the Poconos. They had amazing commercials. Oh. Beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. I never got to see that. You got to our... play tennis. They had like <laughs> champagne glass shaped hot tubs. It was it was oh. like my ideal of being a, a grown up was Martini With... and Rossiasi Spumante tennis and champagne coupe shaped hot tubs. But a grown up like who's successful with money having like the high life. Well, the really, high life. I mean, all I really needed was a lover. <laughs> Abigail, my mother is listening to this podcast, and hopefully, yes, and hopefully, a, yours is too. Has a lover with money, yeah, <laughs> right. So somebody's got to pay for the martini and Rossiasti Pumanti and those tennis lessons, which can be very expensive. Okay, so back to vermouth. Mm-hmm. So vermouth is super popular early eighteen hundreds over there, meaning France and Italy. And it arrives in American ports in the 1840s. But it isn't really showing up as something that is commonly used to mix in drinks before the Civil War. And in fact, Jerry Thomas's book, which we've referenced before, and is referenced a lot as like the first time that somebody writes down... Here's how, to make, here's how to make cocktail recipes. And there, and there aren't a lot of cocktails in it. It's a lot of punches. And it, it's sort of reference. It's, it's, that, it's on that uh, cusp between... Well, who wasn't there yet, Elizabeth? Who hadn't arrived via boats through Ellis Island? The Italians? Yeah. Oh, they know how to make the drinks. Yeah, look, no, look for the waves of immigration that come to the United States during that period after the Civil War, and you have waves of people coming from Europe. And what are they bringing with them? Vermouth. Yes. <laughs> well, I feel like if you're going, if you're escaping like a pogrom or escaping poverty, you are probably not packing a bottle of vermouth. Yes, but this but was medicine at the time. But you're also bringing um, a preference for it, though, yeah. right? So yeah. eventually, so, uh, and that actually is a nice little lead into the market grows. And I have I have a little fun fact 
uh, for numbers for New Orleans. And, and for those of you that live elsewhere, you could ask your historic newspaper, which you can search through your local library. Please do. Um, so in New Orleans, the first appearance of vermouth for sale is in 1849. And I want to give you a sense of its popularity, or rather lack of. So um, it's a guy who is a liquor salesman. He also sells olives and, and like uh, cherries and other stuff. Uh, but he is selling just dozens and dozens and dozens cases of brandy. Okay, because 1849, super popular. Um, 28 cap- cases of absinthe. And even three cases of orange flower water, mm. which made me wonder... It's possible that it was also used, like women could also use it kind of like as a toilet water, mm-hmm. maybe, but, but if it had sugar in it, maybe not. Maybe everybody was just putting it in their punch. I don't know. But so three cases of orange flower water, six cases of vermouth. Okay, so that's 1849. So like not a lot of vermouth. Mm-hmm. But 30 years later, 1879, you have 500 cases each of Nui Plat and... Martini Sola. Wow. Wow. That's huge. It is huge. So that I feel like is, New Orleans certainly a drinking town and will be a cocktail town um, and a town full of people coming from other places. Places. Yes. Um, So perhaps that's a little higher than it might be in other cities, but Mm -hmm. I still think a good snapshot. And of course, some people were drinking it just on the rocks with a twist. Mm-hmm. Or one thing that is in an updated Jerry Thomas book is the vermouth cocktail with only vermouth and either Booker's or Angostura bitters. Hmm. Bring that back. I think what we're seeing is the evolution of the first kind of golden age of mixology. And they called themselves mixologists. So that's where that term actually comes from, is what, from that period. What do you think about that word? I'm, I'm you know, it's... It's a word that has been um, maligned and or dismissed as someone who's a little snooty, but I love its historical connection, that this was the first wave, and this is an example. Like, we went from, you know, consuming, what was that, three cases of vermouth? Uh, six. Six cases of vermouth to 500 each mm-hmm. within a 30-year period. I mean, that that is a movement. Mm-hmm. That is a movement that is happening. That movement was created and, and spread by mixologists. American distillers and winemakers see this and they get kind of interested. There's there is a brief movement of Americans wanting to make vermouth, which does not go successfully. Why? Because people had been making it for a while. It came the there was a, a hundred years. A newspaper a, years. a newspaper article says that you should go to Italy or France and spend a few weeks um, learning how to make vermouth. But in fact, you probably need to apprentice, spend a year. And I also think that by the time Americans embraced this product, they had their favorite or they had the name. These names are going to matter, particularly when we, get to, when we get to Martini, right? yeah. so, which is another episode. But yes, Carpano Antica, I call it when I can. I still know I love that vermouth. And that is the very first vermouth created. Yes. And then uh, Dolan is still around and Noe Pratt, like... Julia Child's favorite vermouth. Yeah. It's absolutely still around. Wow. 
there's so much history here. It's it makes me feel like so connected to something bigger and stronger and more powerful than myself and I kind of love it. So, to answer your question how I feel about mixologist, I love that it connects me to these guys. Mhm. And I do say guys because that's who they were. Yeah. But you get ladies later. You get ladies later. So so vermouth is here. Let's get back to the Manhattan cocktail. Okay. Vermouth is here. The cocktail exists. Right. The cocktail as we know it, which is bitters, sugar, spirit, and water. Mm-hmm. Now vermouth is here. And I think that this drink that we now call the Manhattan, which we've been, we've been saying this a lot, this drink that we now call Blink, was being created already mm-hmm. by those pesky bartenders who can't keep to the the old ways mm-hmm. and it's why the grumpy old man doesn't want modifiers yeah i mean working as a bartender my instincts are the manhattan is created as originally as a modified cocktail especially if you look at the timeline of the different manhattan cocktails through the years that go back to the 1880s there's so much information on this which is like really great and really cool but what you see in the evolution of this cocktail is that it has ingredients in it like gum syrup it has ingredients like curacao maraschino liqueur maybe even absinthe these are all modifiers that would be made to an old-fashioned what we now call an old-fashioned but Mm -hmm. an original cocktail to make it fancy or improved so some people kept improving it until they improved it to the point where they were adding so much vermouth to it that they were like this is this needs a name now yeah, it emerges as a thing. Mm-hmm. In the same way that, frankly, the Sazerac emerges as a thing mm-hmm. with the absinthe and then the herb saint. Exactly. Like that, that whiskey cocktail is modified enough, mm-hmm. and now it has its own name. So, But do you, would you agree that this drink was probably created in Manhattan? Right? Don't you think? Absolutely. I think it has to be. I think it has to be. Or near? <laughs> I, I think, you know, the earliest known reference is 1860s. A bar on Broadway near Houston Street. But but yet, less than 20 years later, it appears in print. Well, there's a couple of other theories. Let's hear But them. the one that I, the one that also makes sense to me, is there is a place called the Manhattan Club. Mm-hmm. And these clubs in the mid-19th century were um, staffed with very talented bartenders who were often... Uh, renowned, famed for making their own drinks or making signature drinks for the place that they work. So each place had its own signature drink. And there is the Manhattan Club, which is uh, located at Fifth, on Fifth Avenue at 15th Street in what is now the financial district, for those of you that know New York. No, it's not. No, it's not. No. That's how Phil Green <laughs> describes it. Fifth Avenue and 15th Street mm-hmm. is not the financial district, Phil Green. Okay. No. It's it's the village. Okay. It's just north of the village, veering into Chelsea. So it's too far north to be in the financial district's way, way yeah, further if it's south. Fifth, yeah, no. 15th Street and 5th Avenue is is nearing the Flatiron District, quite honestly. Okay. Yeah. All right, so you can go, so you can't go there. I mean, you can go to that corner. It's you not can. it's not there anymore. The Manhattan Club. The Manhattan Club. No, I'm trying to think what is. It ain't there no more. Um, So it's 1866 when uh, probably a Dwayne Reed or a bank. It's been, (laughs) it's been, it's been moving around. Eventually, uh, locates there, and the earliest mention 
of the Manhattan cocktail shows up in a New York newspaper, an upstate New York newspaper, September 5th, 1882, which apparently we need to make Manhattan cocktail day. Um, It's coming up. September 5th, the official Manhattan day. I'm going to have a party. Okay. Okay. Um, The Olene Democrat is the name of the newspaper, and they say, talking about compounders of drinks reminds me of the fact that never before has the taste for mixed drinks been so great as at present and new ideas and new combinations are constantly being brought forward it is but a short time ago that a mixture of whiskey vermouth and bitters came into vogue it went under various names Manhattan Cocktail, Turf Club Cocktail, Jockey Club Cocktail. Bartenders at first were sorely puzzled what was wanted when it was demanded, but now they are fully cognizant of its various aliases, and no difficulty is encountered. So by the 1880s, everybody knows if you order a Manhattan, what's in it, which is whiskey, vermouth, and bitters. No mix, no mention of garnish yet, mm-hmm. or any other modifiers. And the other thing that's I think notable is uh, it's a mixture of whiskey, and they don't call it they don't call the whiskey. And we had a discussion the other day about rye. We were talking about the Sazerac mm-hmm. and how bartenders in New York let it go and made the Manhattan with bourbon but it looks like even in the 1880s you could get it with bourbon and the Manhattan Club had their own bourbon that you could buy I wonder because this was before bourbon was regulated what were they calling bourbon bourbon like is it is it really bourbon or is it whiskey or is it a blend or I don't know I am um, oh you mean I've just tasted like a hundred year old whiskey mm-hmm. and I've asked the make you mean hundred you know, hundred year old Bourbon or rye? No, it was it was whiskey. Which is called it, it was whiskey. called whiskey. whiskey. Right. And I asked my friend who was serving it to me, Well what well, what is it? He's like, It's probably bourbon. But they didn't label it at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so you couldn't really tell. It was just a, a real hodgepodge blend of bourbon or rye or probably whatever they had. They didn't it wasn't regulated, so it wasn't measured. I know in New Orleans that in the eighteen eighties and nineties they would distinguish between rye and bourbon by the barrel mm-hmm. but we also don't know what that tasted like i mm-hmm. mean you can you can guess right mm-hmm. what because now bourbon is very regulated yeah. and its palate is pretty narrow mm-hmm. because of that regulation yeah which is why we have so many different there's single malt there's four grain there's weeded whiskey there's bourbon there's rye there's scotch there's irish there's barley whiskey is a huge category and through regulation yeah we've kind of made it and well each each segment of that category has gotten kind of narrow narrow. yeah 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 agreed but that's changing people are playing with their whiskey again which is great Mm -hmm. i think you're right i think when i first started bartending 10 years ago there was this movement to bring back rye because we assumed it was rye whiskey it had to be rye whiskey and it more than likely was rye whiskey maybe they brought in bourbon in the 1880s because it seemed a little exotic because rye was much more plentiful ubiquitous and and i know that that's what was being made 
um, there were before prohibition there were 1200 distilleries in new york that's crazy. And they were probably <laughs> mostly, well, there's a few now, right? No, I know they're back, but not 1,200. No. I still weep for all that lost whiskey. Uh, of those, what were the 1,200 making? Probably a lot of rye whiskey. Yes, a lot of rye whiskey. Yeah. But what separates this drink is how popular it becomes. Mm-hmm. Like global. This drink went viral, guys. The Manhattan was huge. I have a couple of things I want to read to you. I'm going to I'm going to quote to you from a um from an article that was written in 2008 actually by my my old boss Sinjin Frisell at Fort Defiance. He's the owner of Fort Defiance, but he's also a very talented gifted writer and a wonderful cocktail historian in his own right. And I love his passion for this cocktail in this article which is about the decline and fall of the Manhattan in edible Manhattan. And he writes that this cocktail was so popular, we had famous Austrian actors in 1885, Adolf Sonnenthal, a sensation in Europe who was touring the United States, had to come and have Manhattans. And he wanted the recipe to bring back because he didn't think anyone in Vienna would believe him how delicious this cocktail is, unless he made it. When this Austrian actor comes, it starts to spread around the world. And it became an international sensation. I'm going to quote the article now. This is Sinjin speaking, also quoting from his research. Years after Herr Sonnenthal tasted his veritable Yankee nectar, the Maharaja of Kampurathala, the raffish Indian prince who would later shock society types on two continents by marrying flamenco dancer Anita Delgado was introduced to the seductive Manhattan during a bar crawl of New York's music halls and roof gardens in 1893. This sounds very modern. I would still do a bar crawl. Of Manhattan's roof gardens. Yes. Absolutely. According to one account in the Columbus Daily Inquirer, the cocktail exhilarated the royal senses of the East Indian potentate to such a degree that he ordered one of his attendants to go back and get the instructions just how the beverage was made. And a few months before the Red Badge of Courage was published in 1895, a young Stephen Crane was filing newspaper articles from Mexico and had this comforting advice to for tourists traveling to New Mexico City. And to those gentlemen from the States whose minds have a sort of liquid quality, it is necessary merely to say that if you go out into the street and yell, Give me a Manhattan! About 40 American bartenders will appear of a sudden and say, Yes, sir. Uh, I have a little coda for the, for all of those quotes, which is, that in the uh, late 1880s, the St. Paul Daily Globe made a list of drinks which make a man feel like a king, and the Manhattan topped that list. Number one, baby. <laughs> Number one. Uh, also, a little New Orleans note, uh, the drink is described in the newspaper as a juicy and delicious compound, and by 1909, you could buy a bottle of it, um, and the bottle... Uh, was produced by Thomas Handy, the owner of the Sazerac Bar. And so he sold, quote, a Sazerac Manhattan. But I wonder 
if that meant he was using his own rye that he would have been getting from Maryland or if it was branded because that was the name of his company. And so it's like, buy my bottled cocktail made. And so, because Sazerac means a lot of things yeah. if you go back and listen to our episode. Yeah. But it was only $1.25 for a quart. Very interesting. A steal. Well, this this drink actually quite easily um, survives pr- prohibition. Perhaps it is because of its worldwide fame and because of it continues to be made. And it, and it continues to represent this American ideal, this New York ideal mm-hmm. of class, of civility, of every man a king, if you can order a Manhattan cocktail. Because in my own personal family history, my great-grandfather, Arthur Charbonneau, left Montreal um, he was the last in his line of men and with a little money from his spinster aunts or spinster sisters I think he gets to Manhattan and gets a job at the old Wardolf Astoria Hotel so this is at the same time that Oscar was the Oscar Tchinsky is the guy who invented the Wardolf uh, the Wardolf salad mm-hmm. And he was a great barman in his own right. And my uh, great-grandfather, Arthur Charbonneau, is a barman at the old Wardolf Astoria Hotel. So he is making Manhattans. Um, And the old Wardolf Astoria Hotel, this is located, this gothic beauty of a hotel is located in the footprint where now the Empire State Building stands. When uh, he met my great-grandmother, Teresa Gilmartin, who came from Ireland and worked as a maid in the hotel. And they had children, one of whom was my grandfather, Vincent Charbonneau, who taught me how to make a Manhattan when I was seven. He was not a drinker. My grandfather was not uh, known for his drinking. He didn't drink a lot. I barely saw a drink in his hand. But when he did, it was a Manhattan. When we went out to eat, he would order a Manhattan. He would send me to the bar to get a Manhattan for him. It was to him still, because I'm sure he got it from his father, the epitome of acting like a fancy New York man Mm -hmm. is ordering this Manhattan. So this was my first taste of of, um, the civility attached to cocktails and how it can transform you as a person. Because my grandpa was, you know, a businessman and a father and um, an army man and fought fought in World War II and raise 10 children. Jesus. And he has 48 grandchildren and counting. And 16 great-great-grandchildren and counting. And his wife, my grandmother, is still alive to reap the glories of this beautiful family that we've built. But it is still a very poor family. And it's a family that has been touched, like a lot of us have, with alcoholism. And yet, this cocktail, the Manhattan, is still held up in my family as the epitome of class and it represents Gramps and his grand nature that he carried himself in always no matter what state of life he was in he was a man with great pride and great pride of of his home in Manhattan where he grew up I love that he taught you to make it when you were seven well when you're one of 48 grandkids you look for reasons to like stand out in the crowd Mm -hmm. and that was mine wheeling in the bar cart yeah and having him teach me how to make a Manhattan. So uh, this would fit better in the martini episode, and I may include it, but there's uh, a movie that I adore, Auntie Mame, starring Rosalind Russell, mm-hmm. and she's this very flamboyant, very wealthy woman, 
in New York during Prohibition, and she teaches her nephew how to make a martini. And there's a wonderful scene where he wheels the bar cart out to meet essentially a banker, a man who's supposed to be concerned with his upbringing, and he makes him a martini. And Auntie Mame says, knowledge is power. <laughs> well, I, this is why, again, to go back to that mixologist statement, mm-hmm. while I don't completely shrug off the title, because I've never, you know, there are a lot of bartenders who try to shrug that off and be like, well, you know, I really like making blue drinks, or I really like making drinks out of things that taste terrible, and I like, I just like cheap whiskey and shots and, and a beer when I get off of work, and I'm mm-hmm. like, I like a Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fancy. I yeah. I consider myself fancy. I think it's delicious. And I seek out the people who make it right. And I know now enough to like find the people who make it right. And, you know, that comes with growth and learning. But, but that, that, it always gave me something to aspire to, you know, like those, those cocktail menus that I used to see at a diner. I didn't know the diner wasn't a fancy place to eat. That was fancy to us mm-hmm. go, growing up. Eating at the diner was fancy. They had a fancy placemat with all these beautiful drinks that nobody ordered. And I thought, oh, when I turn 21, I'm going to order all these drinks. Mm -hmm. Little did I know, they don't make those drinks. (laughs) (laughs) It was just for the placemat? (laughs) I learned that when I tried to order a Rob Roy when I was 21 at a a diner. diner. (laughs) Uh, I was still so naive. uh, In some ways, I still am. We always have so much to learn. Never tell yourself you don't. Abigail, I think that since we all have things to learn, and mm-hmm. today we can learn how to make a Manhattan. Yeah. Right? So let's go to the bar. I'm going to make you guys a Manhattan. Come on down to the bar. Okay. Good afternoon. Welcome to the bar at Compare La Pen. Today we're going to go over making a Manhattan. The first drink I learned how to make. Now, my grandpa liked this drink 50 50, what he called sweet. So it was 50% vermouth and 50% whiskey with cherry. Um, I'm going to do my Manhattan uh, the way I like it. Let's do a perfect Manhattan today. Now, a perfect Manhattan isn't a Manhattan made perfectly, but a perfect Manhattan is actually specific specs um, that require that a Manhattan be two parts uh, rye whiskey and half a part dry vermouth and half a part sweet vermouth. And I like mine with a lemon twist. So let's do it. I bet regardless, you will still make it perfectly. Regardless, this drink will be made perfectly. We're going to put some ice in the mixing glass. Now remember, this is still in the category of a cocktail. And a cocktail has to have bitters. So for this Manhattan, we're going to use just your classic Angostura bitters. About two dashes. And we're going to do two ounces of rye whiskey, a half an ounce of sweet vermouth, and a half an ounce of dry vermouth. The worst thing you could do to a martini or a Manhattan is to shake it. It's, I mean, you can get away with it in a martini, I'll say. And with a Manhattan, I think it's kind of a crime. You want that Manhattan to be velvety smooth. So we're just going to give it a gentle, long stir. Now we're going to pour it into a Nick and Nora glass. We're going to do a lemon twist, and because I'm feeling fancy, and I feel like having a treat, a cherry as well. 
<laughs> Breaking all the rules. Actually, it's no broken rule. It's quite all right to ask for a twist and a cherry. Just like I think uh, with a martini, a twist and an olive is lovely. And there you have a classic, perfect Manhattan made perfectly. Thanks, Abigail. She's drinking it. And now I get to. Mm-mm-mm. All right. Now we have to do uh, rock, paper, scissors to see who gets to drink it. <laughs> so I realized that I am kind of in your grandpa's camp. And I like a maybe not one-to-one mm-hmm. ratio, but I do like a sweeter Manhattan. Well, I'm okay with that because, you know, I made an example of a perfect Manhattan there's a sweeter Manhattan. There's 50-50 Manhattans. But, I mean, think of, like, the Manhattan as we discussed it, how it was in the 1880s mm-hmm. versus how it is now. It's virtually the same. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Now, consider the fate of his, the Manhattan's grandson, the Martini, which we will talk about. And it's a bit more tragic, a downfall, as to what has happened and why it's a stronger fight. I like the Manhattan because it's solid it's steady. It's like my grandpa. Mm-hmm. He's a big, strong <laughs> force that is comforting and wraps me in love and makes me feel safe and um, is classic. It is indeed. Mm-hmm. I also love that uh, in New Orleans, if you know the right bartender, that even at a kind of neighborhood or divey bar, you can get a good Manhattan. This is true. If they have removed. And when you go to a bar, if you want to order a Manhattan, they should pull that vermouth out of a refrigerator. Absolutely. Something chilled. That's I learned that from you. Yeah. That was one of our tip of the days, wasn't yeah, it? Right. Yeah. Right. So speaking of... So, so the other thing that was different about the martini I made was I did a twist and a cherry. Yeah. Why What's choose? The deal? What's the deal with the garnishes on a Manhattan? How? Um, so we were looking at, uh, before we started, we were looking at recipes starting in the 1880s into the uh, kind of pre-prohibition. And all of those uh, came from Phil Green's book. He he did the Lord's work collecting all of these recipes. And you got to kind of see the drink evolve. Although, frankly, as Abigail says, you know, uh, evolve subtly, slowly, gracefully. Mm-hmm. Um, not the big, big shifts that you're going to see in, in a martini, for example. But, Abigail, what, what are the garnishes that you see? Lemon peel. It's always a lemon? Yeah. Lemon peel. Orange peel. Let's see. Lemon peel or a cherry, 1895. Oh, that's good. You get okay. an ad and or. Lemon peel is a, a really popular garnish in in a lot of these drinks. Why do you think um, not the cherry? Or what's the thought on the cherry now? So um, the thing about cherries is that um, they were Marasca cherries, Croatian in origin, which is the the wife of my grandfather who invent who taught me how to make the Manhattan mm-hmm. is actually Croatian of origin as well. So this mm-hmm. is a nice little connection. She's the cherry in his Manhattan. Mm. I kind of like that. Ooh, she'd like that too. Hell Kitty, that's her nickname. Hell Kitty. Oh my! In the 19th century, it became very popular in the rest of Europe, but it was very scarce. So they were served in fine bars and restaurants, but they're very expensive. So I think that's why we see lemon peels instead of cherries. Right. And then the USDA Act in 1912, which kind of destroyed, and then and the 1905 Food and Drug Administration Act, mm-hmm. which destroyed a lot of the bitters trade 
mm-hmm. in um, America apparently had a an effect on the cherry trade as well. Oh, I also want to have a little uh, side note that the lemon trade, it was all coming from Sicily. I think I talked about Justin Nystrom's book on um, the Sicilian lemon importers here in New Orleans. These two factors matter. One is lemons are cheap. Two is cherries are expensive. Absolutely. Okay. That seems to be what was happening. And a lot of the cherries were preserved in liqueur as well. So that becomes a problem during Prohibition. So the movement towards maraschino cherries, as you may know them, those those kind of cherry red, atomic red bombs, mm-hmm. uh, sugar syrup flavored with oil of bitter almonds, and it's kind of since the 40s when we see kind of more processed food becoming in and that makes sense the cherries are dyed red and impregnated with sugar and packed in sugar syrup and wait why they're they're dyed red because the process that that preserves them turns them white correct right you correct which is why you have those green cherries sometimes too that you see in like fruitcake fruitcake yeah 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 so this is just this is kind of like this is a dark path we went on in the United States, in the name of like making things easy, accompanied with all this new technology, mm-hmm. um, we made a kind of terrible product. Yeah. I mean, I remember even as a kid being told, don't eat the red cherries. They have that red dye that causes oh, cancer. Wow. When we used to go to the country club on Sundays for a Sunday lunch, I was allowed to go to the bar and come back with an enormous napkin full of cherries, which I would nibble on while everybody else had their, you know, their their cocktail. And I drank my orange juice and grenadine which of course we know was not grenadine it was simple syrup dyed red uh, so that I had my cocktail in my rocks glass with my extra cherries so we had opposite maternal reactions to red dye (laughs) (laughs) I think I think you probably see the cherries develop in like in the mid-20th century because it used to be a hard to get product now it was easy to get and cheap Mm -hmm. so why not throw it in i mean and they are like that color that fits, so totally fits with 1950s atomic like all the like jello mm-hmm. colors those mm-hmm. very chemically neon lurid colors that don't exist in nature mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so i see that's probably where that happened and i'm glad we're kind of we've moved back to that you know i like it when People are really obsessed with finding the nice cherries, Mm -hmm. the real Morasca cherries that they still make. Again, just like vermouth, they still make in the same way. It's the same companies that still produce it. You mentioned Luxardo is a great brand that a lot of us use. There's a lot of Italian brands, Croatian brands, Dalmatian brands Mm -hmm. that are famous for their preserved cherries and how delicious they are. Abigail and I have a mutual friend named Stephen Joseph, and Stephen used to run a bar where his sister used to work for him occasionally, bartend or bar back. And he walked in one day and she was nibbling on a Luxardo cherry and he hollered at her, that's 17 cents. (laughs) (laughs) And she gave him a quarter and said, (laughs) keep the change. (laughs) But but still, even even today, the good cherry is... Is expensive. expensive and hard to find. So the I, I can see why a bar who would be p- moving a lot of Manhattans, possibly, 
would have the twist as the default garnish because that one lemon twist is still way cheaper, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't. What's a lemon go, go for these days? Not as much as a cherry. Yeah, not seventeen cents. Okay, so I think we've we've hit. It. Okay, we've got. We didn't really talk about the bitters. The bitters. The bitters in uh, Manhattan are, I've seen it as orange, I've seen it as Angostura, I've seen it as Boker's. I've always, you know, from a modern standpoint, I say use the bitters that kind of goes with the seasonality Hmm. of the cocktail you're having. I I like to just go with classic Angostura or like that classic heady bitters. But if I'm having a Manhattan in the winter, I might want something a little more spicy and clove heavy like uh, Dale DeGroff's Pimento Dram Bitters. Um, if I'm having one in the summer, I might want something a little lighter, like maybe one dash of orange, one dash of ango. There's lots of wiggle room there. I would encourage you to do what I love to do, which mm-hmm. is the taste test. Mm-hmm. And go to a bar with a friend who likes Manhattans and order three and keep everything constant except the bitters, right? Mm-hmm. Because you think, oh, it's only two dashes. How does that matter? And they totally Ooh, it matter. They matter yeah. a whole lot. People still ask me what are bitters. And what I tell people is they are to a bartender what spices are to a chef. So you use a little bit, a little more. You layer different spices on top of each other, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes for certain recipes, bitters follow the same, same path. Yeah. For a bartender. So the conclusion of the story of the Manhattan is that nobody knows for sure where it was invented, although New York definitely seems likely. Now, Phil Green does mention a New Orleanian who might have invented it, but he was in Manhattan. Uh, He was actually a a bar owner, a a New Orleans bar owner who was in Manhattan. Way to make this all about you. Once again, by the way, Elizabeth. (laughs) Thank what? you. It's a Manhattan cocktail. You're going to tell me a New Orleanian <laughs> invented the Manhattan cocktail, possibly? I said Phil Green says. But it's a, it's well, a st- by the way, he's a descendant of Antoine Peychaud, yeah. so I don't trust him either. <laughs> Actually, he no, he, he, he puts it out. Basically, what he does is he goes, Phil Green goes through all of these stories and shoots most of them down. We're going to get to Winston Churchill's mother in a second. Oh, yeah. But the... The reason that I brought up the New Orleanian is um, his name is Joe Walker, and he was visiting friends, and they were out on a boat, and all they had was whiskey and vermouth. Oh, what am I going to make? And then he made this drink. What I, I liked about it is I learned I learned about a bar in New Orleans that I, I didn't know about, um, so this is why I'm sharing it with you. It was the Crescent Billiard Hall. And it was a, a renowned drinks palace. So I'd heard of lots of the gym, the Jewel of the South, the Ruby, all of those great 19th century New Orleans places. But the Crescent Billiard Hall was apparently the bomb. And Colonel Joe Walker, before he owned the Crescent Billiard Hall, worked at the St. Charles Hotel, which is apparently where everybody went to learn oh, yeah. how to be a bartender. And But the reason that Phil Green says that this is unlikely is because... Stanley Clisby Arthur, who wrote the book Famous New Orleans Drinks and How to Mix Them, which is a fantastic book, but is also full of lies. <laughs> <laughs> and is a total homer. He's a homer. I mean, yeah. If it can be from New Orleans, he won't make it from New Orleans. He does not uh, assert that the Manhattan is from New Orleans. Wow. So 
I can't believe he didn't take that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so no to Colonel Joe Walker and no. definitely no to Winston Churchill's mother. Yes, this is a rumor that went around that it, Winston Churchill's mother invented the uh, Manhattan cocktail for a political event. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was from Brooklyn. By the way, uh, she was a socialite from Brooklyn. But so it was imp- impossible because she was in England having Winston Churchill she at was, that time. Yeah, she was like literally giving birth yeah. to him yeah. at the time. Well, I don't know if she was literally giving She was pregnant with him and she was in England. England. So this story is 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 false. Yeah. It's not even unlikely. It's not definitely even, not, it's not definitely true. not true. Plus, we have references to the cocktail before that. Right. So Invented in Manhattan. Not entirely sure... By, by whom? Who? Although probably I, in the 1960s. I mean, in 19 <laughs> probably invented in the 1860s to 70s. Yeah, and probably some version of it being made even before it was called that by other bartenders. Absolutely, because that's what they were doing, and like many cocktails. And once we now that we've we've started to cover a lot of cocktails and we're we're kind of branching out now into co- more named cocktails rather than categories of drinks um we're going to see more and more of this you know? yeah like i'm sure right now if you're a bartender wherever you are and you're working on a drink and you're like i've invented a new drink i guarantee you someone else has probably done that as well <laughs> <laughs> You have 200 years of history yeah, in front of you now, behind you. And the last 10 to 20 years has been packed with people doing all sorts of... We are in a second golden age. This, this age where the Manhattan was created was the first golden age. Mm-hmm. The age we're in right now is the second as far as the age of mixology so this is this is a huge burst of creativity we're seeing so now you have a lot of people asking so what's this generation's manhattan what's this generation's martini what's this generation it's people are already throwing out their their suggestions oh for what they are but well we will talk about that we are going to talk about that another time yeah um and i also say like i mean i don't have to be wedded to the past or stuck in the past Mm-mm. but i mean god manhattan good manhattans nice to honor it yeah I know, you can't go wrong with a good manhattan and um and often they're terrible <laughs> i've definitely had terrible uh, manhattans uh, it's shaken it's aerated it's, it's it's almost gray yeah it's really really not good and of course your vermouth you have to take care of your vermouth it's a wine you open it you consume it within two weeks. You keep it capped and refrigerated when you're not using it. Um, that sounds like a tip of the day. Is that, that your tip of the day? That's my tip of the day. Please take care of your vermouth. And if you go into a bar where they don't take care of their vermouth, where you see bottles of Martini and Rossi with speed pours in them that look like they've been sitting on the back bar since 1979, for the love of all that is holy... Do not order a Manhattan from that bartender. Whiskey on the rocks, baby. Whiskey on the rocks. (laughs) Okay, you have history. You have good advice. This is a big. This is a big drink and a big drink episode. This is. I think we covered everything. This is my. This is my. uh, My desert island drink. Hmm. This is the drink I want to be. Well, I mean, technically, if I'm on a desert island, I probably want something more like a mai tai. But if I were to only drink, is it your last drink? Yeah, it's my last drink. It's the drink. If you can only drink one drink for the rest of your life, what would you drink? Oh. Like with food, it's easy. Pizza. Because pizza comes in so much variety oh, and it okay. gives you so much and it's so delicious. I never thought about the food. For me. But. It's Manhattan. 
Uh, so pasta. <laughs> and even though I don't eat a ton of pasta, but like of the variety. The variety. Yeah, because you can have all the things. Yeah, and that's funny because I just said, I just said earlier, Manhattan doesn't have a lot of variety. And that's what I like about it. Mm. But guess what? The variety is in the detail. It's in the details. It's in the details. And when people started, once the Manhattan becomes established in the 1880s as what it is, whiskey, vermouth, and bitters, then the variations start to happen. And then people start renaming it. So right away you have the Brooklyn cocktail, Mm -hmm. which uses dry vermouth and Americon and orange bitters. And then flash forward about 100 years, you have the cocktail called the Red Hook which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And then you have a cocktail called the Longshoreman, which is a cocktail that is named after the people who worked in Red Hook. And then you have a cocktail called the Big Chief, which I created (laughs) here in New Orleans that kind of takes my journey from Manhattan to Brooklyn to New Orleans as a bartender. Mm -hmm. And that's that's my own like little personal cocktail family tree. Abigail just made a circle with her hands. Towards my heart. Towards her heart, yeah. That's that's where all these cocktails live. Yeah. In my heart. Oh, that's a good and that's a good place for them to live, but also your belly. (laughs) Uh so I we encourage you to make Manhattans, drink Manhattans, drink broadly. Mm-hmm. So you know, drink with broads, right? Broadly with broads. Uh, but so you you start to learn, uh, going back to a couple of episodes ago, where we encourage you to figure out what your Manhattan would be. Mm-hmm. Tweak. What's your ideal Manhattan? Yeah, and then come and have one with me. Mm-hmm. I'll make it for you. I might go have another one. Okay. Uh, so thanks again for joining us on the Drink and Learn podcast. If you want to uh, ask us any questions or, you know, say nice things to us, you can send it to cheers at drinkandlearn.com or you can rate and review us on the iTunes. We are on Instagram at Drink and Learn. And I also have my own personal Instagram, which is my name, Abigail Gullo, G-U-L-L-O. Yeah, we love hearing from you. If you try a drink as a result of hearing this episode, we would love for you to uh, at us. I guess that's the verb, right? Yeah. Tag or add. add. Let let us know. Uh, someone did that the other day on Instagram, and I was very delighted. Uh, they, they were drinking a Tom Collins uh, in, I think it was like a child's like Disney cup, which I love <laughs> when people do that, uh, in Florida. But they said that when they got back to New Orleans, they were making a Sazerac Aww. too. So yeah, let us know if you are inspired by, uh, the podcast makes us happy. Yeah. Well, we hope you make inspired cocktails. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers y'all.